Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from one of the founding fathers of the internet about his goal of open access to the sum of human knowledge for people all over the world. Our guest today has a rather different focus, to protect technology from those who would hijack it for criminal purposes. What we are looking at in the future when we're thinking about the next industrial revolution, like Industry 4.0, where everything is connected to everything, and now it's not just information technology, but it's operational technologies, and now we're starting to talk about smart grids and autonomous connected cars, this is where it becomes more tricky. That was Nadaf Zafria, and he came into the FT's offices in London to tell me about his work with governments and companies to try to keep the cyber hackers at bay. Nadav, you are the co-founder and CEO of Team 8, which describes itself as a startup foundry in the cyber industry. Could you tell us what you do? We're basically a venture creation. We build companies from scratch. We're an incubator because we start our own companies and we incubate them. But we're also a fund because we make the first initial a round investment in each one of the companies that we start. But above all that, we have, I think, cutting edge research capabilities to understand what's really going on in the intrinsics of cybersecurity, a very strong recruiting capability, and a go-to-market capability. And the vision is that if we can build five companies over five years, each one takes a different vertical, and that together we've got the holistic overview or strategic overview of what's really happening in cybersecurity these days. And we read every day in the newspapers about some cyber attack somewhere in the world. How big a problem is it, do you think? I think it's very big. I think it's getting worse. Naturally, this is where the money is. This is where the information is. This is where most of our lives are being run right now in the digital world. And so crime is just shifting from the physical to the virtual, which is natural. The way it's happening is not exactly the same as it happens in other arenas. And so just like in other digital areas, taking the technologies that uh, um, cyber criminals use and replicating them is done at a staggering price. And so the price is low. Copying is almost seamless. And so we see more and more and more cyber criminals becoming organized in different parts of the world. And the other thing is that legislation is also lagging behind. And so you almost got a perfect storm in terms of what's happening right now in cybercrime. Right. And one of the companies you've invested in is Elusive Networks, which uses deception-based technology. Can you tell us about that? What are they trying to do? Elusive, which is the first company that we started a couple of years ago, aims to solve, I think, one of the biggest problems in cybersecurity when you look at the enterprise realm. So everybody understands that protecting the perimeter is important, but not enough, to say the least, because we don't really own our networks anymore. The data flows from one place to another. We're actually working what we would like to call network of networks. So what Elusive is doing is looking at what happens after an attacker is already in your network. How do you detect them with a low rate of false positive? And so in terms of advanced persistent threat or targeted sophisticated attacks, when they're attacking relatively large organizations and enterprises, the gap that we identified very clearly is what we call the signal-to-noise ratio. And so what happens is that there's no lack of data, there's an overflow of data. 
for the analysts that are trying to figure out if their network is safe, if they've got an attacker inside, and so on and so forth. The problem is that the amount of alerts that they're getting daily is just reached numbers that are phenomenal and almost irrelevant. And so we see enterprises that get over a million alerts daily. Obviously, 99.59% of them are false positives. And so when we researched that and when we understood that that was a big problem, we decided to try to look for another approach. And this is where one of the advantages that we have in Teammate in our research group is that we have researchers that really understand the attacker and can really get into the attacker's mindset and understand what they're talking about, what they're thinking about, what their vulnerabilities are. Specifically, when you look at a sophisticated attacker, after the adversary is in your network, the biggest challenge that they have is moving from one place to the other. It's the orientation and the propagation in the network. Because sophisticated attackers are targeting a specific enterprise for a specific reason. However, they penetrate it opportunistically. And so they don't know where they are, and they don't know where they're going. They don't know what's surrounding them. So the way they move or make lateral movements within the network is by collecting data, understanding where they are, who they are, where they should go next, and so on and so forth. And it's an iterative process. So the theory is that you have pretty little hope of ever catching someone with a firewall. These people are going to breach them one way or the other. They're going to be in your system. You're just pursuing them around, noticing all the characteristics of what they're doing and then tracing them back to source, as it were. Basically, what we decided to do is take the approach of instead of trying to identify the actual malware that they're using, is that we're disrupting their decision-making processes. In order to move inside the network, in order to propagate inside the network, they collect data and make decisions. What we're doing is we're spreading deceptions throughout the whole network on the real entities in the real network in a contextual manner, which causes them to see accurate data, but also data that is deceptive. And now, based on deceptive data, they make their decision of how to move from one place to another. Once they use deceptive data, which only they can see and not the normal users, we know for 100% that this is a malicious actor within the network. So you're, in short, kind of confusing the heck out of them. We are confusing the heck out of them. We're taking the network and looking at the topology of the network, where it looks like not from the user's perspective, or from the IT's perspective, but from the attacker's perspective. Once we can understand how they see the world, we can make very subtle changes or augmented reality to their world, and now they have to bet every time they make a move. Sometimes the chances are one out of two, sometimes one out of ten. One step after the other, eventually, they have minimal chances of moving without being seen by our system, Once we know for a fact who they are, where they're coming from, where they're going, the next step of getting them out of the network is not trivial, but possible. One of the philosophies of network cyber defenses is that the more companies you work with, the bigger the network there is, the more chance you have of spotting malicious attacks on one company and understanding how it could be applied against another. Could you talk a bit more about the network of networks that you're building up? Yeah, so what we see in the uh, criminal world right now, cyber, is that once attackers have realized an opportunity in a specific market with a specific malware, they'll replicate it. And so if you're a retail company in, in a specific geography and your neighbor has just been breached, well, you're probably the next guy because it's just economies of scale for the attackers. So yes, we do see that. 
However, these are usually not the top level of sophistication attacks. These are more opportunistic. When an attacker is contracted to go for a specific IP or for specific M&A or for a specific person or list or data, usually there the sophistication is one tier higher. And this is where a philosophy like elusives becomes very, very effective. Right. What are the main targets now of cyber criminals? Is it the banks primarily? So we saw this attack on sure, Bangladesh. Financials for sure. That's where the money is. But not necessarily. We see them going after M&A deals. We see them going after IP. And the lower hanging fruit, what we see is ransomware, which could be very personal. Remember, again, the price of replicating is zero. The price of trying is almost zero because if you fail, you go to the next guy. The repercussions are very, very low for attackers because of the geography, because of legislation, because of politics. And so they'll try again and again and again. And so they go for individuals, they go for M&A deals, IP, everything. Now, I've seen a number of cybersecurity companies who are able to trace back the attackers and find them at source, which raises the question of what do you do if you find that uh, some criminal gang operating out of Siberia is identifiable? Do you think it's a good idea to try to take them down? Or is that a terrible idea because you might not know exactly who they are and they themselves might be using deception techniques and you might end up taking down JP Morgan by mistake? Yeah, well, I think this is where private companies will have to work with governments around the world and governments will have to collaborate with other governments. That's the only way to actually get to the source. As private companies, I think it's almost impossible. There are legal limitations and other limitations that I think private companies will have a very hard time actually reaching to those places. And honestly, it's very, very difficult. The obscurity, the attacker's capabilities to move from one continent and hundreds of IPs simultaneously makes it very, very hard to trace it down. If you have traced it down, I think this is where you need to talk to the authorities in the respective countries and try to collaborate with them and have them go after. Because at the end of the day, you also want to take it to court. So a lot of the legal stuff comes in. And I think that's where collaboration is paramount. We've also seen not attacks just from cyber criminals, but also seemingly state-backed organizations as well. How worried do you think we should be about that? And clearly there are lots of allegations flying about a Russian hacking of US network systems and the DNC and so on. Is that right, do you think? Look, espionage before cyber has been around in all of modern history and will still be around in the future. So the question is not if there is cyber espionage. Of course, there is cyber espionage between states. They did it through human actors and then through signal intelligence, and now cyber is paramount. And that's just different technology for the same ends. What we are looking at in the future when we're thinking about the next industrial revolution, like Industry 4.0, where everything is connected to everything, and now it's not just information technology, but it's operational technologies, and now we're starting to talk about smart grids and autonomous connected cars, this is where it becomes more tricky. Because Because we're making ourselves massively more vulnerable. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the implications can be much larger. That's one area that we should be worried about. Another area that we should be worried about is not necessarily cyber espionage, which, like I said, has always been there, but attackers or hackers, either criminals or state actors, going after the integrity of the information. And so if you can imagine the implications of cyber disruption in financials for the integrity, how do you bounce back from that? That becomes a bigger problem. And I think 
that opens an opportunity for state actors, non-state actors, criminals, activists to do massive damage with relatively limited resources. Where are most of these attacks coming from? We have the usual suspects in different parts of the world. I'm no longer in the intelligence community, so I don't know exactly where they're coming from. I do know that if you're going to the dark net, you can find cyber as a service for prices that... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That would seem uh, almost funny. If you look at what happened in Target, for example, in 2014 or towards the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, where they were able to get 30 million records or credit card records of Target users or customers, the actual malware that they used cost them $5,000 on the black market. And so we see Eastern Europe, we see Russia, we see China, we see North Korea, other areas in the world. And honestly, I think it's just something that we're going to have to deal with in the next few years. There's another company you're investing in, Clarity, which defends critical infrastructure. Can you tell us about that? We started building Clarity, understanding that in the machine-to-machine networks, the biggest gap is not overflow of data, but rather lack of data. Machine-to-machine networks could be turbines that have been around for 150 years, but are now connecting to the world. So these are power plants, transportation, critical infrastructure that the protocols or the languages that they use were designed in the 70s and the 90s, pre-ultra connectivity, encryption, authentication. And the way they were protected is basically just because they were isolated from the rest of the world. Now, this is no longer the case. The trajectory, either because of efficiency, because of the fourth industrial revolution and so on and so forth, is that all these networks are now connecting to our spaghetti IT networks, except that that's almost disastrous. And so what we decided to do primarily is bring visibility to the OT network. There are a number, probably about a dozen automation giants that sell the products of the automation, the ICS vendors around the world. And the protocols that they're using are proprietary, obscure protocols, like I said, some of them almost ancient in terms of IT. So what we're doing is learning the actual languages so that we can do a deep packet inspection into these networks and so that we can understand what's going on in the networks and create a baseline and an extreme visibility. Based on extreme visibility, now you can start understanding how these networks really work and create the right level of security for them. But it's not only about security anymore. It's also about efficiency, integrity, and so on. You're a former head of the 8200 Military Intelligence Unit, which is a legendary unit in Israel. It has also served as an extraordinary incubator for high-tech businesses in Israel. What is it about 8200 Unit that has seeded so many businesses? I think that the most important thing that organizations like the IDF in general and 8200 specifically have been able to do is understand or crack the great challenge of identifying talented individuals at a very young age with almost zero experience, training them extremely fast because they have to, 
and then shifting the responsibility to their very young but motivated shoulders at a very young age, taking them through a process where they learn that failing is okay and daring is almost a way of living, either in the battlefield or in research and development. And I think one of the things that has been very, very successful in this program of recruiting, training, and responsibility taking is that at a very young age, these individuals not only get tech savvy, but also the entrepreneurial leadership skills. And so that when they come out of the military, it's almost natural for them to become entrepreneurs, start their companies, and so on. Now, in data science specifically, I think that it's not only about the leadership collaboration and the entrepreneurial atmosphere that they come out from, but also the actual traits and knowledge that they take from being in this cutting-edge research environment. So if you think about it in an intelligence organization, what you have to do is try to do things that are considered impossible. Because if you're able to do something that the rest of the world considers impossible, then you have an edge as long as nobody else knows that you can actually do it. And so what you do in an organization like 8200 is you screen 100% of the population every year based on the fact that we have mandatory service in Israel. And you try to predict what kind of skills these very, very talented, motivated, and may I say naive individuals can learn in a very short time. And what specifically are you looking for in that? So math skills, data science problem-solving skills, the ability to work in a collaborative environment, optimism. Remember, these are very young individuals. They're extremely naive. Again, when you want to solve problems that are considered impossible, naivete here is a great advantage because a lot of times we ask them to solve problems that we either tried to solve you know, numerous times and failed miserably or we haven't tried it yet, but it's considered by the academia or whatever experts impossible to do. We bring these individuals together, sometimes magically, just because they don't know that this is supposed to be impossible. They solve it because they have a fresh angle, because naivete, again, here may be an advantage. Now, they serve for about three to six, seven years. So by the time they come out of the military, rather than being disadvantaged vis-a-vis their peers in other countries that have already gone to college, university, and so forth, I think in many senses, they're getting the best tech entrepreneurial education on earth, which is on-the-job training, being at the edge of technology constantly, understanding that if you don't innovate, you literally might die. Remember that it's an environment where there is no IP involved, there is no money involved, the motivation is crystal clear, and you work your ass off, sorry. And so when you come out, you know, you're really ready for this incredible pace of change that technology is taking us these days. That sounds a very different culture to equivalent agencies like the NSA or the GCHQ in Britain. Yes, I'd say that probably the main difference, I would say, is the age. These are not career officers. I mean, I spent 25 years in the military, but I'm an outlier in that sense. Most of these kids come in extremely motivated, but they don't want to stay in the military as a career. 
They know that they're going to do it for three to six, seven years. And they anticipate the fact that after that, they can go into the high-tech entrepreneurial fun world, which is extremely luring and attractive right now. And that kind of entrepreneurial network must benefit 8200 as well, because you're building up that expertise. So is it a real specific goal of 8200 to seed all these enterprises, or is it really a byproduct? I think we never planned for it. We didn't really realize that we were literally building probably one of the best tech entrepreneurial schools on earth. It just turned out to be that way. I think once we understood that, we embraced it. And I think in that sense, also the Israeli government has been pretty savvy in sort of a laissez-faire environment where people encourage it, right? So you served 8200, some of the skills that you learned there are relevant for the tech environment, Go ahead and do it because that's part of the ecosystem that we're creating in Israel, which is extremely important for a tiny country in the Middle East as this becomes the main economic instigator of what we do in Israel. Now, there was a lot of controversy a couple of years ago, about 8200, when 43 military reservists wrote a letter saying that they were personally concerned about the intrusive nature of espionage against Palestinian communities. What constraints are there on 8200? Well, the the usual legal constraints that you have in Western, modern military and intelligence organizations, I think that at the end of the day, like anything else, it's a matter of balance. You want your privacy on the one hand, and you want your security on the other. And you have to constantly balance these two very important things. You know, we live in the Middle East. It's not an easy place to survive. Honestly, I think that 8200 lives up to the highest standards and that, you know, these reservists don't really represent the thousands of young men and women that think that what they're doing stands up to the highest moral standards. Part of their argument, though, had been that although the Israeli citizens themselves benefit from extraordinary rights in this area, that that clearly didn't apply to the Palestinians and that there was coercive intelligence used against them. Look... The only thing I can tell you from my experience is that, again, we live to the highest standards in terms of integrity, in terms of ethics and law. But at the end of the day, we live in an environment, in a world, unfortunately now it's not only the Middle East, but Europe and the U.S., where we have to deal with extremists and terrorists. And in order to save lives, we need to have information. It's just a fact of life. From my experience, I think we never went overboard We were very cautious to do only what we needed to do. And remember, at the end of the day, intelligence organizations have very limited resources and overwhelming jobs to do. I think that 99% of the cases, probably most intelligence organizations in Western countries use their power very, very efficiently only when they have to. Not only because it's the right thing to do, but it's also the effective thing to do. Finally, I'd like to ask you about the UK, because you're here speaking at a conference on cybersecurity. The UK is one of the most digitized economies in the world. We have a very big financial sector here, and a lot of people say that we are almost uniquely vulnerable to cyber attack. How big a problem is it for the UK? As an eternal optimist, I think, yeah, extremely vulnerable, but also immense opportunities. Great business opportunity for you. Obviously, but not only for us, but also for every company that comes here. See, one of the problems that we have in our ecosystem in Israel is that the actual users of the technology that we produce are very limited in Israel. Now, in order to come up with effective solutions for this overwhelming problem that we're dealing with right now, you need to do it from the bottom up and not only from the top down. You need to have 
players that work with you. This is one of the reasons that in Team 8 we have strategic investors, not just financial investors. So we're working with the likes of Cisco and uh, Nokia, Accenture, AT&T, Citibank, so we can get their angle and understand how they see the problem. What you have here in the UK in terms of the financials or the financial capital of the world is you have the users, you have the experts, you have the people that actually have to deal with the problem. You also have a terrific intelligence organization in the GCHQ. And so I think the elements to be innovative in this specific area of cybersecurity are actually here. And the fact that you're the financial capital, yeah, it does make you vulnerable, but also it gives you the opportunity to become the leader in this kind of technology. Nadav, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Next week, we hear from the American entrepreneur and academic Vivek Wadwa about the self-drive car revolution. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.